the not too distant future Next Sunday AD There was a guy named Joel Not too different from you or me He worked at Gizmonic Institute Just another face in a red jumpsuit He did a good job cleaning up the place But his bosses didn't like him So they shot him in the space And I'm Brent, and this month we made it just in time to bring you a jam-packed episode. First up is my interview with Blue Box Alliance founder Jeremy Wheeler and how his organization is using Doctor Who to stop bullying. Then our UK team, James and Ian, chime in to report on the current state of Doctor Who fandom in the UK, followed by our main feature, the winner of the Who Against Guns drawing, Stephen March, discussing game design, Doctor Who, and his favorite classic show, Mystery Science Theater 3000. And that's all coming up right after this. Joining me today is Jeremy Wheeler, part of the Blue Box Alliance organization that's doing their part in the campaign against bullying, but with a unique Doctor Who twist. Jeremy, welcome to Who and Company. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what is the Blue Box Alliance all about, and how did you get it started? Well, uh, I am a public school teacher. I, I mostly substitute, and uh, anytime I would go and teach in the middle school or the high school, I would always drop quotes during my lessons that I, I knew that uh, hardcore Doctor Who fans would pick up on. And uh, sometimes I would notice students wearing Doctor Who t-shirts and things of that nature. Or mm-hmm. to kind of keep the students quiet, I would take my sonic screwdriver to school with me. And, of course, the, the toy version makes just a very small, light sound, uh, but just enough to, to make the point. And I would use that saying that you all are allowed to talk in class as long as you don't get louder than the, the sonic screwdriver. And that always worked as a crowd control mechanism. 
And uh, uh, of course, a lot of students were like, who's this crazy guy with a with a buzzing plastic toy or, you know, and, and other students were like, oh, my God, you're like the greatest substitute teacher ever. And so, you know, uh, being in public education and having been you know, raised in the public education system, um, of course, bullying has always been, unfortunately, a staple in the public education environment. And seeing a lot of kids bullied and harassed for being strange or unusual or uh, for whatever reason always bothered me. And it bothered me growing up because I was bullied. It bothered me uh, because my friends were bullied. And then finally being on the other side of the desk, so to speak, bothered me seeing a lot of other kids uh, being tormented and harassed for, for just being different. And uh, mm-hmm. when I saw... When I saw kids being bullied and I noticed that there was uh, an unusual amount of Doctor Who fans as young as middle school and high school, even in this day and age, who knew who Doctor Who was, um, uh, I, the, the idea began to uh, germinate from there. And then uh, the popularity of cosplay conventions began to pop up around where I live. And I thought, you know, I'd like to... I'd like to I'd like to do Doctor Who cosplay, and then uh, I became friends with a man by the name of Ron Smith, who uh, a few years ago uh, uh, started a group called the Classic Doctor Who Regenerated, and he has a short film on YouTube where he plays the Fourth Doctor, and he was doing a crowdfund campaign raising money to to uh, to make brand new adventures as the fourth doctor. And I thought it was absolutely amazing. So he, cool. he and I connected on Facebook. Uh, we stumbled across each other in a doctor who fan forum. And I instantly recognized him and, uh, I, we connected on Facebook. We began to chat and he told me where he got his, his amazing costume, his wig. And of course, Ron looks almost identical to Tom Baker and does an amazing Tom Baker, uh, voice impersonation. Mm-hmm. And then that led into, uh, it began to germinate even further. And then I saw another group that dressed up as Batman and DC and Marvel characters. And, and they used that as a platform to speak out against bullying and speak out against drug abuse and substance abuse. And, uh, and they did a lot of charitable work. And, and I thought, I would love to do something like that, but as Doctor Who. So in late 2016, I just threw an idea out there on Facebook and started to browse a lot of Doctor Who fan forums. And surprisingly, I got some responses from people that lived not too far from me. And we began to get to know each other. And the next thing we know it, I began to email conventions, a lot of cosplay and comic conventions and pop culture conventions, and they invited us to, be, to, to come as guests. And then, uh, um, and then Blue Box Alliance was born from there. And uh, we've, we've amassed a little over a thousand followers on Facebook. We've got, uh, I'm just guessing here, maybe 300 followers on Instagram and maybe a couple hundred on Twitter. And so uh, we, our mission is to speak out against bullying and let people know that it's okay to be strange, it's okay to be alien, it's okay mm-hmm. to be unique, 
because those are principles and ideals that I feel that Doctor Who embodies. And that's why we chose Doctor Who in particular. And uh, we came up with the name Blue Box Alliance uh, mainly because uh, we didn't really want to copyright or uh, infringe on the copyrights of, of uh, the British Broadcasting Company and just call ourselves the Doctor Who cosplay group or whatever. We, we wanted right. something that we felt we could call our own, but yet uh, support the TV show that we just madly adore. I, I just think that's great because bullying is, I mean, everybody's been boiled, bullied, I think, in their lifetime, but at least once or twice. And it's just become such a big, big problem lately over the last 10 or 20 years. And I think really the root of that uh, is social media. Yeah. Um, you know, you remember when you were a kid, you got embarrassed in class. Most of the time, it never left the classroom. And, and now, not only can it be videoed, it can be shared across the whole school and potentially worldwide. So, you know, your humiliation has now increased exponentially. And, and you know, some kids shrug it off. Other kids draw inward and commit suicide. And then others go outward and try to take as many people out as they can. You know, and I just think... Uh, the real problem is is stopping the bullying. That's really what has to be done, and and I think what you're doing is such a great thing. So, what sort of things are you doing to counteract bullying? And and you said you're a school teacher, so you're there at the school. Yeah, fortunately, the school district I work in uh, uh, cuts that stuff off uh, immediately. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case in many districts uh, all over the country here in the United States. And it's certainly not the case in a lot of places around the world where uh, reports of bullying uh, seem to fall on deaf ears with school administrators. Um, a lot of schools have a written policy, but a lot of times they don't enforce that policy or they don't take it seriously. Uh, in fact, uh, when, when we began to get Blue Box Alliance rolling uh, early in its infancy, uh, I got several reports from parents uh, locally who who knew me personally and they, they knew my mission, they knew my cause, and they would contact me letting me know the horrible, nightmarish things that were happening to their kids. And their kids were wanting to miss school, they wanted to be transferred, or they, or they wanted to drop out because of, of uh, the torment uh, to that. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the things that we're doing is we, right now, we're focusing on appearing at pop culture and comic conventions. We're going to be appearing at the Columbus Wizard World on uh, June 8th through the 10th. And uh, John Barrowman, who played Captain Jack Harkness during the Russell T. Davies area, is going to be there. Uh, uh, David Tennant was there last year. He won't be there again this year that I know of, unless he's a last-minute addition. But uh, um, surprisingly, when people see our TARDIS... They automatically know what it is. We offer free photos. We never charge anybody for anything. And uh, uh, there are people there at these conventions that do charge to have their pictures taken. Fans have their pictures taken with their TARDIS. We don't charge anything. In fact, everything we have, we give away for free um, because we want people to approach us and talk to us not only about Doctor Who, but then they ask us, well, what are you guys about? And we tell them, well, you know, we're, we're an anti-bullying mission and... And we've had people literally weep and, and, and cry out of uh -huh. pure joy that, that there are people out there using Doctor Who 
as a means to speak out against bullying and 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 help alleviate the stress and the pressure on uh, not only children but young adults and and older people that are suffering from bullying or whatever the case may be. And so we speak out at conventions. Uh, we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, but we're we're about to produce our very first Doctor Who fan film, and uh-huh. uh, we've written a script specifically that that's very all for intents and purposes, very Doctor Who, but a very subtle message that speaks out against bullying. So this just isn't a random romp through time and space. The Doctor's on a very clear mission. And so we're going to start producing fan films, hopefully if this one takes off. And of course, um, we're, we're gladly, we, we gladly do appearances at libraries. We offer a day with a Doctor where we have a Doctor Who-themed party and uh, we encourage literacy with uh, children and adults. Uh, we, we, we haven't made any appearances in schools yet, but we're working on that. But we will gladly go to schools dressed up as Doctor Who. Of course, the students can take their pictures with, with us as Doctor Who characters in the TARDIS. And we present, we, or we will present a live-action version of, uh, of our fan film uh, once we get to that level. But those are just sort of the, some of the things that we do. And, of course, we, we speak out uh, fervently on all social media platforms uh, little stats and statistics about bullying and its effects and what parents and people can do about that when local authorities fail to uh, step in. That's some great ideas. You mentioned the movie. It's called The Celestial Friendmaker. So tell me a little about that. Yeah, uh, The Celestial F- uh, Friendmaker is a script written by myself and also Blue Box Alliance member Cody Skeels. And, uh, you know, we've, we've wanted to do a Doctor, ha- a Doctor Who fan film for quite a while. I'm very fortunate, uh, even though I live in eastern Kentucky and it's not really, um, it's not really Hollywood-esque, I-, I am fortunate to have a lot of friends that are uh, excellent at what they do in terms of filmmaking. So we've got some, uh, we've got some very qualified people to operate um, uh, very expensive cameras, uh, a director, and uh, a lot of people behind the scenes. But the story focuses on two girls named Amber and Heidi. And Amber is a troubled young teenager. She's a bully. Heidi is just trying to get by one day at a time. You know, she's she's being bullied. She's an innocent teenager. And... Uh, the Doctor, this is a fourth Doctor adventure. It's an extended Doctor Who universe. So for all the geeks out there that are like, this is not canon, we know that. We understand. <laughs> and uh, don't fault us for that. Uh, it's, a, it's, a do- it's a fourth Doctor uh, spinoff adventure. It, it takes place right before the fourth Doctor meets Leela. He's just dropped off Sarah Jane in, uh, in Croydon. And so it's in that between stages where he just left one companion and is about to meet a new one. And, um, and he lands in the United States. And uh, when he lands in the United States, he meets a very strange but dangerous alien that we have simply called the Shadow that, mm-hmm. uh, that feeds off of negative energy and negative emotion. And uh, this Shadow begins to uh, chase and follow these two girls. And the doctor, in typical fourth doctor fashion, stumbles across these two girls uh, conflicted with one another. And he's, he's left with the choice, uh, 
Well, who's he going to take in time and space on an adventure to show the value of life? And uh, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but, uh, but the doctor ends up uh, changing both their lives in a magnificent way and, uh, uh, and does away with the alien threat in typical Fourth Doctor fashion. And um, we, we wrote the ending of the script to uh, have a cliffhanger in hopes, we're, of course, we're not counting our chickens. We, we know that Doctor Who fan films are, you know, uh, good and bad. Some of them are better than others, so we're not counting our chickens before they hatch. But we did leave a cliffhanger uh, open just in case it does do well then people will want to know, well, what's going to happen after this? Where do we go from here? But uh, the message is the doctor shows both of these girls the value of all life and, uh, and, and trying to get along with each other and trying to find common ground. How can we, in spite of the fact that we're, we don't get along, what can we do to, to find some way to get along? There was a, a quote by the 12th Doctor. I can't remember which episode it is, but it's something that I live by every day. An enemy is just a friend who doesn't know it yet. And so That's right. that was the springboard for this script. How do we turn people that are enemies into a friend? So mm-hmm. I think we do that quite well. And uh, it, it's quite exciting. It's, it's an exciting script. I know uh, we revised the ending because I tried... I tried to write Moffat style for the ending. I came up with this really sad, tear-jerking moment that <laughs> that even made me cry. And I thought, maybe we need to make this a little less teary-eyed and, and make it a little bit more uh, adventurous. So uh-huh. uh, we'll save that ending for another episode later if we're fortunate enough to, to make another one. But, but yeah, we're really excited about it. The script's finished. Uh, we've had it peer-reviewed by a professional script editor and a screenwriter who's been in the... Uh, film industry for nearly 30 years. He's also a walking uh, encyclopedia of uh, Doctor Who information. He loved the script. He only made very few suggestions, which, you know, we went through an extensive editing process. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so the script we're finished with now, we're very happy with. We're getting ready to, to, to do a casting call as soon as we finish uh, with our appearance at Wizard World in June, we'll be doing a casting call. And then we hope to start uh, rolling the cameras in uh, the fall of this year because obviously when you're the fourth doctor, you're wearing a wool scarf and it just wouldn't be comfortable in a wool scarf filming in the middle of summer. So, um, especially in the United States. And so... Right. Uh, we're going to wait until the fall when it's a little cooler to, to do some filming. And then we hope that we'll be able to release the film uh, at the end of this year or at least early 2019, very early 2019. So it's just something we hope Doctor Who fans will enjoy and also use as a template to discuss the, the effects of bullying. Well, that sounds great. And um, as soon as it comes out, we'd love to have you back on and talk about it. Gladly. I think this is a wonderful idea of what you're doing here, the, the Blue Box Alliance and, and all of your crew. And I'm sure there are many listeners out there who'd like to donate and help. So do you have a website or a page where people can donate? Right now, we are in the beginning stages of setting up a Indiegogo uh, to, uh, to assist with the uh, funding of this film. It shouldn't take a whole lot of money. We've already got our own TARDIS that I built a year ago. 
Uh, we've already got our costumes. Most of the funds that we will be raising will be to go towards uh, uh, a costume for our shadow creature, which shouldn't be very much, and also to uh, to help pay for the cost of editing and stuff like that. A lot of the stuff that's being done for this fan film is volunteer, which is really nice, but um, we're not going to raise a whole lot of money. We're not going to attempt to raise a whole lot of money for this, but uh, people can keep an eye on it when we announce our fundraising campaign. They can follow us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com forward slash blue box alliance. Uh, we have a WordPress blog, blueboxalliance.wordpress.com. And of course, folks can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Blue Box Alliance. That's great. Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Good stuff. Yeah, definitely. And as I said in the interview, as soon as their fan film is released, we'll have Jeremy and maybe a few other cast members on to talk about it. And now it's time to check in with our UK team. Take it away, James's and Ian. Yes, hello, and welcome to Who and Company London branch with me, James, and Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Now, we are standing in a doorway in Leicester Square opposite the Prince Charles Cinema because we're about to go and see Cloverfield on big screen. It has absolutely no relevance whatsoever to Doctor Who. And the location in London that we're recording in was never used as a Doctor Who location. Don't you find that an interesting fact, Dim? Absolutely. We chose it specially to have absolutely nothing at all to do with Doctor Who and to have a busker with a guitar in the background. There you go. It's the flavour of London or something. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, we thought we would file a five-minute report in a location that has nothing to do with Doctor Who, just to talk about the state of fandom in the UK uh, and also discuss the profile that Doctor Who has currently. Well, to be honest with you, right now, my overriding feeling is that we're just in a state of limbo. It's quite a long time since we last saw Who on the screen. We're still a reasonable distance away from seeing it back, and obviously there's been the changing of the guard in between. And we absolutely closed down the old production team and the old way of doing things. And we haven't even seen, other than a couple of publicity stills, what the new one's going to look like. So there's nothing really going on. I mean, the, the, to be honest, the only conversations I've been seeing, mostly online, is the odd, you know, grumpy old fan going, I'm not going to do this because Chibnall or because female or whatever lunatic reason they're pulling out of thin air, because we haven't seen it yet. But other than the traditional nut jobs that come out every once in a while at the moment we really do seem to be just sat between two stools waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah and I, I, and I can't disagree with anything you said there really I think it's um, I think perhaps the gap between seasons is more quiet than usual I mean there really is very little coming out of Cardiff or out of the production office in any way shape or form and we always suspected that Chris Chibnall might change the way that he um controls information and uh, I think it was very evident that the brand of Doctor Who has been tightened up I mean e even from the very obvious and tangible change that we've seen at Doctor Who magazine now where you've got the new logo on the front uh, you've, you've got what I think is being seen as a much more corporate way of celebrating the show through the official 
magazine or what is considered to be the official magazine even though Pedini own it um, and, and looking at the way Big Finish are having to rebrand as well just to make certain that uh, you know there is no confusion uh, amongst fandom that Doctor Who is Doctor Who is Doctor Who and the fact that we are now going to have uh, the first female actor uh, means nothing in terms of change for the show and it, it, that, that, that's the message I think that seems to be coming out loud and clear I would agree with all that, with one slight exception. I'm not convinced that this is being driven by Chibnall. I mean, if you get into the, the, the territory of anecdote here, there is a feeling that Moffat got too big and too powerful and became the centre of gravity for Who in his last years. But for good or for bad, whether you agree with that or disagree with that, it became very much about his property and him driving it. And I get a feeling that the BBC has said we're not going to have that. We don't want a prima donna taking over what is ultimately their property that they've had for, you know, however many years. And I think they are re-exerting exactly, as you said, that corporate control. And I, the feel I get, and we won't know until we see it more, you know, boots on the ground, is that Chibnall is now an employee of the, 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 the department, so to speak, rather than being the be-all and end-all. And I think there was an air... Again, you can argue whether it was good or bad that, that the Moffat really was the be-all and end-all of what was going on uh, towards the end of, of the old run. And I think the BBC wanted to you know, get hold of that again. I wonder whether or not that is just a, a plausible fan theory. I mean, because clearly we're not going to have any confirmation <laughs> or any comment about that from, from the BBC. I can understand why people believe it and I understand why people are, are, are talking about it. Um, my, personally speaking, it may have been a personality thing. The Stephen Moffat, I think, is very, very clear, has a very large personality uh, and he likes being... Um, the voice piece for the show and I think that was very clear very quickly after he stepped down because he was on stage at Gallifrey uh, talking about uh, what well, and defending in many cases his decisions um, and I don't think the BBC would change their approach in terms of how they handle one of their properties solely down to the personality of the former showrunner um, what I think they will try and do is, is try and bring a lot of the marketing a lot of the branding work under their direct control as opposed to having it uh, labouring under the commercial arm uh, which I think you know uh, BBC Worldwide licensed practically everything uh, in order to try and generate an income so that the show uh, has got you know more income from, from commercial sources there is no longer a brand manager uh, within Doctor Who. That is now back within the control of, of, of the BBC. And I, and I think perhaps we are just seeing the way the BBC likes to do business coming through a little bit more. Um, I, I think unless you're really into the show at present and you are deliberately seeking out set reports and tidbits from people who are going out and, and, and watching the show be recorded and made, I, I, I don't really think there is a great deal of any real content to discuss other than fan rumour and, uh, and speculation. And to be honest, I, I'm deliberately... I mean, I've never been one to go and seek out set reports and spoilers. Uh, I'm also a little bit further removed from fandom than I used to be when we were you know, reviewing the stuff ourselves and going through it on a weekly basis. And in some ways, I'm actually happy about that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to going into this cold. I'm very, very open-minded about where it's going to go. I very much wanted to see the show change uh, without wishing to get into uh, a, you know, do you like Moffat or not argument or discussion. I think whatever your views on Moffat, it had become, there was, it was becoming more and more of the same and, you know, change is good as the rest. And, I, and I'm pleased to see a new vision, a fresh pair of eyes. I'm not 100% convinced I'm going to like it, not because of the female thing. I'm getting air of the first Doctor sort of busy TARDIS 
stuff with a number of companions that I always worry when they cast back yeah, quite yeah, that yeah. far. In the same way that you know Capaldi was a, a cast back the first Doctor, and so was Colin Baker. And my experience is that these cast backs don't tend to work. And I'm a little bit worried that this has. A th- I'm just going from a set picture. You don't know. No. Um, but you know, I'm I'm really happy to just see it go in a new direction, to go into it cold and see what happens. And I'm really looking forward to just being pleasantly surprised, yeah. going somewhere I'm not expecting it to go. Well, I think we're certainly going to be surprised. And for what it's worth, I think we're going to see the biggest change in direction and feel that we have seen since the show came back in 2005. Uh, and I think that's going to be quite a deliberate change. Uh, and I think it is informed a little by the fact that they have cast a female in, 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 the, main, in the main role. I mean, they, they haven't done this before. This is the first time. This is brand new. So why not try and introduce an element of, uh, you know, of unpredictability? Uh, there's a whole load of insecure Doctor Who fans at the moment, uh, and, and they're, all, they're all worrying. And I think even those who are very, very supportive of a change of direction, deep down, or maybe not even that deep down, they're going to have some reservations, and it will be greater reservations than they would normally experience prior to seeing a new actor in a role of the Doctor because this is more different than usual. I like the fact that there are still a number of conventions taking place and that those seem to be very very similar to always. There's always there's this air of anticipation I think um, that's hanging over fandom in general and that's permeating actual fan gatherings as opposed to just social hangouts online. I genuinely am looking forward to seeing how the show repositions itself and whether or not fandom will follow or whether or not it will really struggle uh, and, and maintain some kind of, well, we've always done it this way and there's going to be um, a them and us over the new and old fans. We'll have to wait and see. I am looking forward to seeing how it all pans out. Yeah, no, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, optimistic and I'm looking forward to the future. And on that note, we shall hand back to our... North Carolina office. Well, I think it's our North Carolina office. I know that's where Brent's office is, anyway. Out, out in the colonies. Yes, indeed. Cool. Thanks, guys. Our final segment is our interview with Stephen Marsh, and I am going to warn you now, it gets pretty nerdy. Uh-oh. We better eat all the ice cream. Then I shave my eyebrows. He's a retired snow monkey. I have a feeling his bathroom sink is always plugged up. Jam Productions presents Merlin. Man, I love Glendale. Hello, Susan. I bet you can have a baby. What can we do for our young friend? Show me the exit. (laughs) Yeah, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Bob Jackass. This month's guest not only is the editor for Steve Jackson Games' Pyramid Magazine, he's also a project manager for GURPS, a role-playing game system that I have played numerous times. But more importantly... He won the raffle to guest on our podcast held by the Who Against Guns Initiative to reward those who went above and beyond with their donations. Donations which helped raise over $21,000 to help organizations that want to change American gun laws and policies. Stephen Marsh, welcome to Who and Company. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, It is always, for me, anyway, it is always fun to talk to individuals who work in the gaming industry. Uh, because this is an industry that is near and dear to my heart and has been possibly the biggest influence on me socially and culturally. Uh, How did you get started? I've been playing role-playing games probably since high school, so it's always been a hobby. In the 
mid-early 1990s, I worked at a comic and game shop, so I kind of had an experience there. And um, at one point, I sent a letter to Shadis Magazine, an independent magazine at the time, that gave a detailed critique of an issue I'd read and kind of offered my vision of what the best possible issue I could imagine would be. And I didn't really think much of it. I thought I might get, a, oh, thanks for the comments, carry on. And a few months later, just as kind of one page ad in the magazine, this would have been around 1996, there was a silhouette of a head. And below that, it had the one line, who is Stephen Marsh? <laughs> and, and you know, you're, you're reading this like, well, that's unexpected. And I really didn't think too much else about it. I got a big laugh. I'm like, okay, obviously they like the letter. Well, moving on with my life. The next month was, according to the front cover, which I shared with Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford there, the special Stephen Marsh issue. And all the article ideas I had suggested for my perfect issue. They had gone out and solicited and created this issue that was basically my vision and put it out there. That's cool. And, I mean, you could have just knocked me over at that point. That was, like, the most amazing thing in my 20-year-old life at that time. And so I was realizing, well, if my vision for kind of doing things was good enough to get published in that way. Maybe I should take this creative writing degree, put it to use, and actually get off my butt and send some articles in. So I did that with a couple articles. They got published pretty darn quickly. And then in 2000, there was a call for a new editor for Pyramid Magazine for Steve Jackson Games. And at that time, I put my application in, said, hey, I've worked at a game shop. I've written a couple articles. I think I'd be a good fit. And they called my bluff. Um, and so 18 years later, I'm still editing that as well as other parts of the game industry that I've been involved with since then. That's pretty brilliant. I uh, freely admit, I remember that issue of Shadis. Um, I, you know, if you had said, hey, it's this issue, I probably wouldn't remember. But I remember the cover because that was, at the time, very popular among uh, people playing Magic the Gathering, I believe. And... Uh, yeah, I know they pulled that off of the shelf at my local shop, which I was a regular at. So that's really cool. That's really neat. And you're working for Steve Jackson Games, which is really impressive because that is an institution that is uh, very formative in my life. I think I started playing Car Wars when I was nine. So that was 32 years ago. So Steve Jackson's been a, a part part of my life for a while that, that's great yeah i have probably a very similar story i think i got the first mini car wars set which was kind of a one-page pamphlet that they did and i think my game shop gave it to me and i'm like oh they're giving away free game jokes on them and then as i bought all the box sets and stuff i realized that maybe there was a bit more to that wisdom than i realized at the time oh yeah yeah was that the was that the one-page cardboard sheet with all the little cars on and the the regular cars and then the rec cars on the other side a uh, mini car wars was a uh, consolidation of the entire rules of car wars to basically a four-page folded pamphlet, so that when it was all folded up, it kind of looked like a, a travel brochure you might see at a hotel or something. So very small, but very basic 
uh, but it gave you the idea of, okay, this is how you drive, this is how you maneuver, this is how you shoot other cars and stuff. And so it was a brilliant distillation of the system to kind of a one-page thing that I think had a retail value of a dollar or something, but a lot of stores just gave them away as kind of a, a teaser for the full game. So Right, 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 right. I'm the novice when it comes to all these <laughs> role-playing games. I, I've never played one in my entire life. I, I've been at somebody's house when they were playing once. When I was a kid, I, I remember watching the um, Dungeons and Dragons movie with Tom Hanks on TV. <laughs> oh, mazes, mazes and monsters. Oh That's yeah, what yeah, it was, yeah. Mazes and monsters, and um, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. And not that that's not why I never played. They just never really sparked interest for me but my son is into it now and he's into uh magic the gathering mm-hmm. oh mm-hmm. and so he he gets those cards like all the time yeah yeah i one of my godsons is is really still like we got him into it at a really early age and now he's he is cuckoo for it which is great because it you know he can have Actually, I was about to say you can have my old cards. You know you can't. Uh, if you're listening to this, you definitely cannot have all my old cards. You can have some of my old cards. That's, uh, you know, I gotta, I gotta pay rent with those sometimes. Um, yeah, thanks to that mazes and monsters. Uh, I don't know if you had this experience, Stephen. Um, was there any kind of pushback against role-playing games, particularly Dungeons and Dragons, growing up for you? No, not really. I grew up in South Florida, which was pretty um, open-minded as far as that sort of thing. It, it would have not even cracked the top ten list of weirdness in the in, in terms of South Florida. Um, yeah, yeah. And my parents were great about it. And my uh, my stepdad was really big into uh, war games and um, those super detailed, like millions of chits kind of board games and stratomatic baseball and stuff. So even if we didn't see quite eye to eye, he still understood where I was coming from as far as pouring over these phone books of instructions. <laughs> That's cool. You're, prior to your working for Steve Jackson Games, were you uh, a Steve Jackson Games player? Did you play the, the role-playing games and, and oh, the yeah. board games? Yeah. Totally. I had a, um, a GURP Supers game uh, that I ran probably, I mean, when I was in college, it felt like, oh my gosh, it was forever. But I think in hindsight, it was maybe three or four years. And I learned the system by playing that game. And GURP Supers is a little more complex than kind of the rest of the line. So it may not have been a great learning thing. So I still remember the first adventure where, all right, the heroes are together and combat is joined and roll the dice. What happened? I think I just killed you, Colin. <laughs> and I had to Whoops. take a break and come up with an improv decision on the spot as to why he was not, in fact, killed. And, um, yeah, that was my introduction to heavy-duty storytelling, role-playing kind of uh, narrative design. Yeah, that's so cool. So, um, aside from... GURPS, what other projects have you worked on? And I'm sorry that I, it's a Doctor Who and television show podcast. I'm just so excited to have a game designer on here. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm going to nerd out a little bit. This is for me. And then uh, we will move on. Well, you'll, you'll be telling people when they should tune back in or fast forward to, right? <laughs> if, uh, if you're not um, interested in the fine arts of tabletop gaming, please skip <laughs> ahead five minutes 
till we start talking <laughs> about Doctor Who. Ding! Uh, let's see, some of the other projects I've worked on, um, I did some writing for the Werewolf reboot from White Wolf Games that they did in the early 2000s, if I recall. Um, probably the most interesting uh, stuff I got to work on was for a system called D6 from West End Games, which was kind of the genericized version of the system that was part of the original Star Wars game from West End Games. And they made it into three different books, one designed for fantasy play, one for modern day adventure, and one for science fiction. And so I did a bunch of freelance work and writing across that line um, because I ended up meeting the, the gal who was the developer of those and the, the editor and the mastermind. And uh, we ended up hitting it off and we got married. So um, <laughs> it was kind of one of these stories that I went in looking for freelance work and things took an unexpected turn, which uh, is kind of a great mute cute story for us. Yeah. Um, and let's see, uh, I've done work on Mutants and Masterminds, which is kind of the, uh, probably the biggest superhero role-playing game out there. I did some work on their magic source book, which was cool. a lot of fun. I got to do some crazy research on the history of magic and comic books and, oh, well, when did Swamp Thing come in and how does that relate to Hellblazer? And, um... And then I've done one standalone adventure, which was kind of my riff on um, the thing, the John Carpenter Antarctic movie kind of thing, that was called uh, Polar Terror, I think. Oh, okay, um, cool. And I just the broad strokes of alien monster thing in Antarctica was what I started with. So it's very, very different from the movie and everything, but it's still an homage to the thing. And that was probably the most fun I had just writing a standalone project like that. That's brilliant. Yeah. The thing, my favorite film. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, any, any kind of, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in my, my vast gaming library, I've got a number of books with your name in it. Well, you're outside the window for refunds, I'm afraid. So it's, uh... <laughs> Steven, when did you first start watching Doctor Who? I would put it somewhere around 1983, like most kids of my generation. I almost, I certainly saw it on PBS. And uh, at the time, mid-afternoon syndicated television, waiting for my parents to pick me up from my grandparents' house, really wasn't very good. But I distinctly remember kind of turning through the channels and seeing a woman in some kind of overalls carrying around a hand in a Tupperware container. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not getting that from Inspector Gadget. Um, and so I, I watched uh, one of the episodes of The Hand of Fear, and I don't think that I saw the opening at that time, but I remember being scared out of my pants at the client kind of closing stinger thing at the end <laughs> and going wait they, they didn't finish Where, where's the rest of the story and so i tuned in the next day and then that's when i got to encounter the theme song for the first time and that freaked me out too and so beyond that 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 would have been my earliest 
memory of the show. So that's what drew you to the show. But what what is it about the program that just kept you watching? Oh, um, I think it was first off in the nineteen eighties, the early eighties. There really wasn't any other science fiction show on like that. And obviously Star Wars was really big in theaters, but there wasn't a small screen version of that. And that era of Tom Baker really leaned heavy into kind of trying to attract that audience on a budget of about eight and a half pounds, um, which I respected and was drawn to at the time. And in hindsight, I think that I really loved seeing a character who was kind of like me in the sense of a little strange, thinking on his feet, quick with a joke, uh, seemed to be the smartest person in the room, but still got in a fair bit of trouble. You know, I, I identified with a lot of that. Do you have a favorite doctor? Yeah, it, it's a cliche, but I, I have to go with Tom Baker. Um, for for the modern ones, uh, probably David Tennant. I actually haven't sat down and watched through all the new series episodes again. I've just kind of experienced them as they were coming out, so I've been a bit nervous to go back and rewatch them with hindsight. But Tom Baker for um, the, the classics. Mm-hmm. And then on the audios... Uh, Colin Baker really blew me away. I've I've loved pretty much everything he's done for Big Finish. So yeah, talk about redemption. How good are those Colin Baker Big Finish books? And it, it's just so nice to to see that the Doctor. You know, he could have been that guy. Really got a raw deal. So that's that's what I'm saying. And, Absolutely, uh, I I couldn't agree more. And I mean, if you would have told me in the early '90s, you know, at some point. You're going to be listening to a Colin Baker story and thinking, that's the best thing ever. I just would have laughed at you, you know. It... <laughs> I know. I, well, you know, part of that is uh, when you have the, like, Mary, like, the Marian conspiracy, right? So you've got, like, one of the greatest companions of all time. Evelyn uh, Smythe. Evelyn Smythe is so good. It's so good. Yes. She's so good. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, um, when I because I got into Doctor Who kind of late in the game. Uh, you know, both of you gentlemen are old school Doctor Who fans. I'm a, I got in with the 96 movie. Um, I mean, I, I, I started with the comic books in the 80s, but but sure. the, the movie was kind of the first televised episodes I started watching. So I didn't get a chance to really get into it until seven or eight years ago when the DVD started coming out and I could actually go back and watch the classic series. But then when Big Finish became available to me, oh, I feel like I was missing out for so long. But this kind of expansion of these stories it really is quite impressive. I, I read several of your articles you sent to us um, about what makes a good Doctor Who story. Uh, yes. What, what is good television? What makes a good Doctor Who story? And, of course, you know, when you're thinking about Doctor Who stories and you're talking about um, – this vast library of information, just not even about the TV, but the audios and the books and the comics and how much time it would take to read all of that. And like, I'm not caught up, but I want to be, you know, like that kind of a thing. I've got a checklist. I'm slowly working my way through it. It's awe-inspiring how much stuff is out there in kind of both a good and bad way. Um, I've I've never met anyone actually who came to the series through the, um, the 96 movie. Does does it work as a standalone? I mean, I've never been able to watch it with the fresh eyes of someone who didn't know what the heck it was about. So I'm curious. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I've probably mentioned this on the show before. 
I didn't know what a regeneration was. So if you read the old Doctor Who comic books, you know, starring Tom Baker and Sharon Davis, uh, they don't explain regeneration. The Doctor just stops being Tom Baker and starts being the Fifth Doctor after a little right. while. It's never explained. And I stopped reading them because I thought it's kind of weird to have a Doctor Who comic without the Doctor in it. So I just stopped, you know, after two years of reading comics. Sure. So when uh, Sylvester McCoy shows up and is killed promptly, uh, I was confused and then became the Eighth Doctor. I was like, this explains so much. And it was that movie that made me go back and find um, the 70s by David J. Howe, among others, and read back and go, oh, there were multiple Doctors before and after Tom Baker. Okay, that makes sense, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it works. Um, I thought for the longest time that the Doctor was half human, and I thought for the longest time that, you know, kissing and romance and bicycle, uh, motorcycle chases were exactly what Doctor Who was all about. <laughs> right, and, right. And uh, I think that it was a really good gap between the classic series. I actually consider it to be New Who um, because it's very different in its storytelling. I think if you took sure. all, of, all of Doctor Who... And you didn't tell them when it was made. If someone just looked at it and you just looked at it from the narrative process, there is a there is definitely a change. And I think it starts with Andrew Cartmel's era in the the, the late Sylvester McCoy. I feel like sure. that's actually the beginning of New Who when the companion has arcs themselves and the Doctor is multidimensional and there's a story that actually kind of connects. There's a thread. and so. But I didn't know any of that when I watched it in 96, so... I, I think my favorite aspect of the movie, just kind of from a meta-narrative standpoint, is that the Doctor has survived so many adventures across time and space. He's been in London over and over, in England, in various quarries and, and other worlds and stuff. And within, like, 30 seconds of setting, setting foot on American soil is gunned down in a filthy alley. It's like, <laughs> welcome to America! <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely some commentary whether uh, intentional or not on uh matthew's part there and the other thing too is as you go back and kind of learn about uh the seventh doctor particularly in the new adventure novels he's that great chess player right he's always 10 moves ahead and what kills him he forgets to check the screen before he walks out <laughs> right. like all he has to do is check the screen and go ah there's a there's a gang outside i should probably wait a few minutes nope okay just gonna go out and get gunned down actually it's not even the getting gunned down that kills him he survives that it's his future companion that's, it kills him on the, the oh, operating oh, table you're right he's he's mostly killed by the guns and then it's the american healthcare system that does him in yeah you know yeah so speaking of guns we in the midst of yet another tragedy in florida this past week um, oh, sorry, Texas. Texas. Texas, the Florida was the last one. Uh, Who Against Guns was a project that we were really blessed to be a part of because it's something that we both believe in. And you donated to this project. Uh, and this is the reason that you are here. How did you hear about Who Against Guns? I, um, I follow the blog of a Doctor Who uh, commentary author, editor, uh, Lynn M. Thomas. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. She, with uh, her husband, Michael Damien Thomas, uh, have edited a number of books. Um, I, I can't remember if she edited them solo or if it was a joint effort, but, like, Chicks Dig Time Lords, mm -hmm. um, Chicks Dig Games, I think. 
and Wiedenistas. Uh, right, from but, Mad Norwegian Press. Right, right. Yeah. Mad Norwegian Press, some of the uh, best books of their type out there. And so uh, I recall she must have retweeted it in some fashion because I don't really keep up with... I keep thinking of podcasts as being this kind of newfangled thing, but then I realized that the last time I was on a podcast was 15 years ago, so (laughs) I can't really think of it as the, the new kid on the block anymore. But I heard about this, and I'm like, well, I don't really know anything about podcasts, but I understand the idea of audio commentary kind of splicing in audio uh, tracks to existing video because I do a fair bit of that with uh, riff tracks and other uh, movie riffing kind of things. Sure. So I figure this commentary project that I heard about with the uh, war games sounded really interesting and it felt like doing something. It felt right in terms of the doctor would approve and... I, it was really heartening to be part of something larger than that at a time when I was feeling as hopeless as I was during yet another senseless tragedy. Yeah, that was definitely to have had that shooting happen during Gallifrey One, where there were all the conventions. I know when you listen to what well, we had both Joy and Graham on our program a couple months back to be able to respond as quickly as they did and to bring together so many people within the community as they did. Um, actually, yes. Lynn was a part of the, the recording session that I was on um, for the, the second episode for the War Games, which was quite a lot of fun. I, I haven't actually watched the commentary yet. I'm still working my way through the, um, the, um, the second Doctor stories, so I've been kind of waiting till I get up to that. Not that there's spoilers per se, I just don't want to jump ahead that much. I completely understand. And the War Games is so good that you'll be able to watch it once all the way through by yourself and then be able to go back and watch it on the commentaries. Though There's there's yeah. some great, amazing commentaries for that. Yeah, really looking that forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so to, to have be a part of that um, is really great. And the fact that you you know, you donated like so many others and they raised so much money. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling because when we had them on the program, they said they were thinking... Two or three thousand dollars, okay, maybe five thousand dollars, seven thousand dollars, but that can't be. You know, twenty-one thousand dollars in a very short period of time uh, is yeah. is very impressive. And you know, because of that, a lot of good organizations are going to be getting donations. A lot of people have kind of been informed of these donations, and a lot of people get to have their voices heard. And you know, the Who Against Guns, even though that drive is over. Um, it's still avail. You know, people are still kind of taking up that cause. There are still people kind of rallying behind Doctor Who as a way to have their voices heard, and, and that that is quite exceptional. And we thank you deeply and profoundly for being a part of that. Um, and because it's also it's awesome because you get to come on here and hang out with us on our podcast, That's right. which is really cool. I uh, I didn't do it for. Um for the chance at uh, fame and fortune, but uh, it's it's a nice perk, and I'm deeply honored to be part of something that did so much good, hopefully, in the long term. Yep, we're glad to have you here. So uh, what we do on this show is we have someone on to talk about Doctor Who, of course, but we know that Doctor Who is not the be-all and end-all of your lives, so we ask you to pick another show to geek out over. So, Stephen, tell us what show you picked and why you picked it. 
I picked Mystery Science Theater 3000. And the reason I picked it is because it seems to scratch a lot of the same itch of Doctor Who in terms of existing both as an enjoyable product unto itself and something larger than that. And, and I can expand on that, but that's the short version. Please do. Expand away. <laughs> yes. Okay, so Doctor Who and Mystery Science Theater 3000. First off, the, the, um, the back of the envelope explanation of what Mystery Science Theater 3000 is, is basically there's this guy trapped in space with two robots who is forced to watch cheesy movies with um, uh, that are sent to him by mad scientists. And so they get through this by making snarky comments. And there's no laugh track or anything, so as far as the joke-to-content ratio, it's one of the highest amount of comedy you're ever going to get on a TV show, just with the number of one-liners and comments and the like that they keep zinging at you. So, um, but both Doctor Who and Mystery Science Theater reward what I think of as fractal viewing. In the sense of, let's say you're a huge fan of Murder, She Wrote, a 1980s detective series starring uh, Angela Lansbury as Jessica Fletcher, detective. You watch the whole thing. You're really jazzed. You'd love it. You want more. You're kind of stuck. There's a few novels you could get. There's probably an interview or two with Angela Lansbury you could track down. But there's no way to continue that experience. But... Let's say you watch Doctor Who and you're a huge fan of the Pyramids of Mars. That episode just really speaks to you. Tom Baker episode with Elizabeth Sladen. And you really love Tom Baker's The Doctor. Well, there's all kinds of other stories with him. Let's say you really love that gothic horror era. Then there's an entire season of stories that you can kind of dissect. Let's say you love that companion. Well, then you can go back to the third Doctor where she started out and watch a different type of television. Let's say you love the costumes. There's an entire world of costuming out there that kind of draws on it. Let's say you loved that story. There are direct stories in audio, or I don't know if there's audio. There's direct sequels in uh, novels and the like. If you love behind-the-scenes things, there's interviews, Doctor Who magazine features, and you can continue just going down the rabbit hole of one series for as much as you like, as long as you like. Mystery Science Theater rewards the same experience in the sense of you hear a reference to, that guy sounds like T-Bone Burnett. You're like, T-Bone Burnett, who is that? Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> or a reference like, like father, like bum, think about it, won't you? And you might discover that that's a reference to a PSA that took place in the late 70s, early 80s, as I recall. And it, it just rewards repeated viewing and repeated thinking about and making fun of bad movies yourself and wondering, well, what would Tom Servo say in this experience? So <laughs> that's kind of how I see the two shows as being very similar to each other. I can see that. I absolutely can see that. So um, when did you start watching MST3K? Um, I don't know how much you remember the 
1990 era might have been even late 89 but there were two competing comedy channels at the time uh ha and the comedy channel i think and our household just had ha and um mystery science theater was just on the comedy channel so my friend at high school had been watching this and raving about it and the idea is basic enough that you can kind of get an idea of what it's like even if you don't get the thing. So I remember him telling me about, yeah, there's this episode that's kind of a jazz fusion 1960s groovy science fiction on the moon sort of thing. And they're making fun of it. Like, I can see why they would do that. And <laughs> uh, eventually I got to go over to his house and he showed me videotapes and that might have been like one of the Gamera episodes or one of the other really early uh, Attack of the the Eye Creatures because they just <laughs> slapped on the Attack of the to the front of the Eye Creatures not realizing that there was a the already there. <laughs> and so uh, since it's not the kind of show where you really have to watch from the beginning, you can pick it up at any time. And I just loved it and I watched it every chance I could till I got to college and I watched it instead of going to classes. <clears throat> we've we've all been there with one show and or game and or beverage or another. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So you think the first one that you saw was one of the Gamera episodes? Yeah, I think so. Or it might have been The Crawling Hand. It would have been one of the seasons one to three. I mean, there would have been a marathon, so we would have, would have watched like six at a time or something so i can't remember exactly what that first one was but right around there uh brent do you remember the first time you saw it vaguely um my best friend in high school we used to hang out on the weekends and i was over there one day and he was like you got to see this show it's really funny and so i turned it on and it's an old movie with some heads at the bottom and i was like well what are you showing me here? And then I hear the wise cracks, you know, and I'm like, dude, we used to do this before this show even aired. <laughs> we used to do this at my house, watching really crap movies and making fun of them. He was like, yeah, it's great. And, uh, so that's, I, I watched a lot of them with him back then, but it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find, um, Steven, that the people who you generally, you talk to who love this show or the people who probably would have talked over the movies anyway, like watch bad movies and talk over them to begin with. I think that that gets a lot of interest. And I think a lot of people who enjoy it on that level do enjoy it. But I know a number of people who are otherwise fairly quiet and are generally kind of Shh, don't talk over it or whatever <laughs> uh, during other movies. And if you try and make up your own riffs during a mystery science theater, you're just going to tick them off. Right, right, so. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I was trying to, because I know there was a show that had the same premise as this some years before. I th want to say it was on Nickelodeon where they took clips of movies and they made fun of it. And I, all I remember is, Doctor, here's that stool sample you ordered. Uh, during some kind of <laughs> medical programming. But uh, I cannot, for the life of me, remember what that is. And, and I haven't thought about it in a really long time, but I remember watching it with my grandparents in Florida a long time ago. But I think the first MST3K episode I saw was um, 
Santa Claus versus the Martians. Ah. Oh. Uh, and I remember like watching it with my little brother because my yeah my stepbrothers because I think when my father started started dating my stepmother. Um, they had cable and we didn't, so we'd go over there and watch TV, and that one was on the comedy, comedy channel. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Oh wow, what are you watching?" And I'm like, "I have no idea, but it's bizarre." And it, you know, <laughs> they he would interrupt and go, "What do they mean when they say that?" I'm like, "I don't get that reference. I don't get that reference. <laughs> that reference I get. That's funny. Don't get that one. That's good. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a funny program, and it's a very unique and very interesting way of of." putting something like that together i mean even not just the gags that they're they're doing while watching the films but those kind of cutscenes in between uh when you have well whoever the the host is at the time depending on which season you're watching yeah i i think that that is one of the secrets to the show's success and why uh, as much as i like other spin-off projects that are are tied to it it doesn't quite hold a candle to Mystery Science Theater 3000 is because a lot of people don't like the sketches, but to me, they give my brain a chance to kind of reset, think about something else before getting into the making fun of movies again. Because I think we've all had that friend or that associate who just is nonstop performing and, hey, I've got the quip, I've got the quip, I've got the quip. And you can't do that for an hour and a half straight, no matter how funny they are. Yeah, you, you need a break. break it up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, it's it's. I had forgotten when I was rewatching these. It's been a number of years since I've seen them. I'd forgotten that they did those breaks, and I, I remember watching it and going, "I could actually use a little break from this." And I'm getting ready to pause the the movie, and they got up and left. And I'm like, "Okay, right, that's the format. Very cool. What are they going to do? It's going to be bizarre." Well, I have to ask the one question that every Mystery Science Theater three thousand fan asks: Joel, Mike, or Jonah? Mystery Science Theater 3000 has been called one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest internet shows. I was there for the Flame Wars. I don't wade into this lightly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it depends on kind of what I, I want. Uh, in terms of the relationship between the, the bots and the host... Uh, Joel, hands down. I, I love that paternal nature. I love... I, I mean, Joel has been called one of the television's top fathers on various lists for uh, many, many years that, that I've seen such lists compiled. And for good reason. If you watch it as a whole, he truly is a father figure to them in a way that you just don't see someone like that. Um, as far as comedy and... If, if I want to be amused, I prefer the Mike episodes. Uh, they're generally much snappier timed and um, just have... The writing is generally sharper, especially when the show began. They just kind of made up stuff on the spot for their first however many episodes till they realized that, well, maybe we actually need a script to make this sound good. But there's still a looseness to that that can allow for some movies to have a really laggy stretch between funny bits at times for the Joel years. But the Mike episodes are generally more entertaining to me. You said earlier at one point in time that you had seen the new Netflix run on it. 
Uh, how, yes, how, do, I how do you feel about that? Um, first off, I, I love that the show is back. Um, I don't know if I can really judge Jonah fairly or not, uh, based on one season. Um, I think that they did much better than I'd feared. And a lot of the magic was back. The episodes though, often felt like they had a script in front of them and they were going to get that line in. And there wasn't that kind of natural interaction with the movie that it felt like, or interaction with each other. And I, I felt like either they could have worked on their timing a bit more or just slowed it down a bit, even trimmed some of the jokes, which feels like sacrilege. But <laughs> um, I, I think that they were trying so hard to make sure they were as sharp as possible that they didn't allow that kind of more leisurely, let's sit down and watch a movie aspect that is part of the appeal of the show. So uh, did you contribute to the Netflix Kickstarter? I did. Uh, I, I actually have a story for that. Um, I They end up showing the credits at the end of each of the Netflix episodes based on how you your name falls in the alphabet. And so as a result of my uh, having donated enough to the Kickstarter and being on episode, I think, 12, I'm not positive, but I share an on-screen credit with Mark Hamill. Um, <laughs> nice. That's that really was, cool. Uh, circus magic, which one of the weaker episodes of, of the new series, just a real slog of a movie. I think it's one that if I go back and watch again, I'll appreciate more, but wow, someone wasted their whole weekend making that, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this show and Rift Tracks, some of the same guys are on both of those shows, right? Yeah, um... So, and which one is better than the other? Do you think? What What are the big differences? Do you think between those two? Sure. So, uh, as a bit of history, Mystery Science Theater three thousand went off the air in nineteen ninety nine. Their um, their final episode made fun of some of the dot com bubble stuff that was just around the corner there, and uh, the people involved with the show kind of spun off into several spin-off projects. Uh, one of the, the probably the biggest one is called Rift Tracks. It started in 2006. Uh, and that had pretty much everyone who was part of the show uh, as of the uh, season 8, 9, and 10, as well as Mike Nelson, uh, who had been the host of the show since season five, midway through. So it had Mike Nelson, Bill Corbett, and Kevin Murphy, who were the uh, Mike um, uh, Crow and Tom Servo, kind of as themselves doing voices over the movies. The folks mm -hmm. who were on during the first half of the show's run... Um, Joel Hodgson, Trace Beaulieu, J. Elvis, uh, Frank Conniff, uh, Mary Jo Peel uh, formed their own thing called Cinematic Titanic that was that basically did a lot of the same thing as far as silhouettes making fun of movies. They were on from, I think, 2007 to 2013, something like that. And then there are a couple other things that have spun off. But 
Rift Tracks is probably the one that's been the biggest and probably most interest to listeners of the show because they've done a few Doctor Who projects. Yeah. They did both of the Peter Cushing films. Um, and then their big project last year was they did The Five Doctors as a live show, and they didn't have the rights to sell that one, so if you weren't there, there's currently no way to hear that yet. Um, as far as which one's better... Uh, Rift Tracks has the advantage of having several different types of movie that they can do. They sell audio tracks that you can sync over various mainstream blockbusters. So there's no way that Mystery Science Theater would ever get to do The Avengers or Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. But there's a Rift Tracks track of that that is the big budget make fun of a movie experience in a way that just isn't delivered anywhere else. But they also do a lot of movies that they've bought the rights to show and done their own commentary tracks that are generally really funny. Um, I still have a real soft spot for the mystery science theater 3000, especially with uh, the pacing issues I mentioned earlier. But one of the problems with all these kind of shows is that a lot of their references do kind of drift as time goes on. And so Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I didn't recommend watching one of the season one episodes, for example, is, you know, do you really want to put yourself into the 1990 mindset again? Uh, George H.W. Bush is president and who's George Sununu? You know, you lose a lot of the references as time goes on. Sure. So Rift Tracks has the advantage of being much more current and so funnier in that regard. That makes a lot of sense. That's cool. I mean, it looks like they've got a wide variety of episodes and stories to watch, and it looks like uh, with Rift Tracks being able to take more modern shows, they do have that advantage for a more modern audience because younger audiences may not jump on board to old MS. T3K stuff, but they might jump onto the Rift Tracks, because I, I don't hear people talking about Mr. Science Theater as much uh, in younger audiences, but I have heard them going and talking about Rift Tracks. So. Sure. Um, it, it's strange. It, television in general, I don't know if you're older than about 30, you can really wrap your mind around what television has done in the past 15 years. Like, a show like Cop Rock or Manimal that just were abysmal, <laughs> huge flops had more viewers or, or like, you know, really close number of viewers to like The Big Bang Theory, the number one show on television, you know? So if you were just to stop someone on the street and say, hey, Super Train, you know, if, <laughs> if they're older than about like 50, the odds are better they've seen that than if they're younger than 20 and you're asking him about Big Bang Theory. It's strange. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So whenever we ask a guest to come on and talk about a show, we ask them to choose a couple of episodes that exemplifies the show or exemplifies why they watch the show or ones they just really liked, whether it exemplifies it or not. And you have chosen two. And we'll just briefly talk about these and why you chose them and what our responses. And so we're going to start with the first one, uh, which is the girl in lover's lane. So why, why was this chosen as a example of, of this program? 
When I chose my two episodes, I kind of wanted to cast my net as wide as possible for what, to me, the Mystery Science Theater experience is. So I knew I wanted a Joel episode and a Mike episode. I knew, if possible, I wanted to get a black and white movie and a color movie. Um, and beyond that, I really wanted to get one that had one of the shorts in there because they did dozens of these public domain kind of, you know, how to speak clearly and wash yourself shorts. <laughs> but um, I couldn't really find one that, that spoke to me as much. But Girl in Lover's Lane is an episode that is actually a fairly decent movie if you were just to sit down and watch it. It's obviously kind of pokey in the way that those late 1950s, early 60s movies are. But the central conflict of a guy trying to find himself and meeting up with someone who's kind of a mentor figure and getting involved in this small town is actually kind of compelling to me. And uh, the sketches, I thought, were pretty funny as well. Yeah. Yeah, I found myself getting wrapped up in the actual plot of the film on several occasions going, God, I kind of want to hear what they're saying versus <laughs> listening <laughs> yes. to them. Though they're riffing. And is it is the main character Denny? Uh, Denny, yeah. Yeah. Danny, poor, yeah. Oh, Denny, man. Yeah, the, he's kind of a milk toast, uh, and it's it's, <laughs> it's it's kind of really fascinating because this, for a show that is, if you're sitting down to watching it, preparing myself for a comedy program, there's some grim stuff in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the ending <laughs> to this film is horrible. It's so yes. it's so grim, and I saw it coming. I, I thought I I knew how it was going to end. I thought I knew exactly how it was going to end, and it just got worse so bad. It got and, really dark. And yeah, yeah, sorry, I should say dark and not worse, because it's, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to see them tackle something like this, because it's also fairly risque. Like, had yeah. this movie been successful, the bathtub scene would be the one that everyone talks about, you know, on these clips of famous Hollywood movie Right, scenes. right. You know, like, had this been a good film, had the script been written by someone who was probably a little better, uh, directed with someone with a little bit more panache, the random prostitute in the bathtub, I know I got a lot of people's <laughs> attention with that phrase, um, definitely would have been a, oh, yeah, I remember when I was, you know, 13, and that one came on AMC, and I watched it for the first time. But Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, what was it about this film aside from it being black and white and uh, being a Joel pick? What what is it that that kind of drew you out of the other ones that kind of fell into that same category? I think that again, I just really liked the um, the the dynamic there. The there was a lot of humorous potential between the worldly they call him Big Stupid. Um, <laughs> And uh, Denny there and just his inability to handle money and <laughs> just, you know, wow, I can't believe I've got all this money. I sure hope no one takes it from me, you know, and, and I mean, he gets rolled almost immediately. Um, and the, the rest of the movie uh, it has it has Jack Elam in a very compelling, if creepy performance. Really um, creepy. Yeah, it. It has one of the one of the things that I was talking about with the movie kind of rewards thinking about it. There's one part of this movie that just continues to flummox me to this day. And I just want to do research on, is this even possible? There's uh, our beautiful, I guess I'm doing a spoiler alert of a... 
You know it's okay. Old we're gonna here. we're gonna spoil <laughs> MST3K. We'll, yeah, let's go Great. for it. Great. So you've you've got the uh, female lead. I I can't remember her name now. Um, but she she gets killed by the Jack Elam character in in the movie, and she's she's dying and. Her voice is like this. And then she lets out the most blood-curdling scream. <laughs> like, I would have a hard time making this level of noise as I was dying. Right, right. Let alone <laughs> her, who's clearly on her last breath. It's like, is this a thing that people do when they're dying? I don't, I don't think so. It's just such an odd choice. It's a thing people do when they're dying when you need to suddenly turn around and accuse the innocent person of the of a murder, right? Like, right, right. You have to <laughs> From draw... From a storytelling point of yeah. view. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's not very sense. realistic, but... But, yeah, it's. I thought also Elam's um, depiction, is he supposed to be uh, someone who is... I think they refer to him as being simple. Or is he someone who is creepy and knows what he's doing but just biding his time? Because it, it seems like he is portrayed in both ways up until yeah. the end, and then the end they, they choose one, sort of. Uh, he folds pretty quick. Uh, yeah. So. I I don't know. I think that he does kind of defy um, pegging as far as what what's going through his head. Um, I think that that character has just found a way through life that kind of works for him. Yeah, yeah. And small town being what it is, you know, just they hadn't found any better way to to resolve that situation, tragically. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, as far as the humor, though, there's just some of my favorite jokes in, in this thing. Uh, uh, you got pretty beat up pretty bad. Well, what about that guy I groined in the knee, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, I groined in the knee. <laughs> <laughs> there were two that were my favorites on this one. Uh, one of them was when Danny is standing there talking to Big Stupid. And he just starts casually taking off his clothes <laughs> right in front of him. And, and you hear, I think it was Crow, one of them says, this isn't the answer, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the other one was when... Um, they're walking through the cafe and like the the film jumps, and one of them says, "Oh no, it's a wrinkle in time." <laughs> <laughs> Honey, where are the kids? <laughs> yeah, it it was a it was a good flick. I just looking from the script standpoint, I was like, "What that's what that what the original film actually really needs is them to interact with the sheriff at the beginning of the movie when they get jumped in the alleyway. Like, so we are introduced to the sheriff as a character, so he can." you know, get to know the two main characters. And I, I know it makes no sense trying to script doctor this film uh, because it works better for, for parody because of it. But I was just like, ah, oh, man, you bring the sheriff in right at the very end and he he seems to be actually quite interesting because he knows everyone in the town and uh, it seems almost sympathetic to their plight but can't do anything when, the, when the, you know, everyone starts grabbing torches and pitchforks, essentially. Absolutely, and it is possible that that character was introduced earlier. Uh, often they did trim these movies a bit to be able to hit whatever time frame they were doing. Yeah, makes so sense. I've, I've gone back and watched some movies in kind of the extended, unedited version and gone, oh, that's a minor plot point that makes a little more sense now. Sure. And, um, 
This Island Earth, I think, uh, which was the basis for Mystery Science Theater, the movie, um, suffered particularly from being pretty incomprehensible due to some stuff they ended up cutting for that. Yeah, I, I, I did see that in the theater because This Island Earth was one of my favorite. I'm a big fan of the 1950s science fiction genre. And I remember watching that one a lot as a kid. And so, you know, it was a show I, I kind of liked on TV and a movie I definitely liked on VHS. I'll go see it in the theater. And, and I remember being a little disappointed by the fact that it, they made it look worse than it actually is. Have you Have you watched any of the movies independent from the actual shows when they're being parried? Like, have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I don't obsess over them or anything, but there are certain movies that I like well enough to try and track down. Um, the, the one that I most vividly remember, because I saw it before the Mystery Science Theater episodes, is there was a television series called The Master, in the mid-80s, I think, that had Lee Van Cleef as a ninja, and um, they turned several of those episodes into slammed-together movies that formed the basis for two of the episodes, uh, Master Ninja and Master Ninja 2. Um, And let's see. um, This Island Earth, obviously, I've seen... um, a lot of the Rhino releases on DVD came with, especially for the public domain films, the original movies. And I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for those 1950s uh, black and white, really atmospheric, uh, tense music kind of sci-fi horror movies. Sure, sure, me too, yeah, absolutely. Psychotronics. I actually saw Menno's Hands of Fate before MS3 did their spoof on it. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine Psychotronic. Uh, no. It was just basically these kind of schlock B-movies, and it, it really highlighted those. And there was a while where I went looking for as many of those that I could find. And, and I know that, <clears throat> you know, back in the day when we had video stores, um, <laughs> that was my preferred kind of was just bad movies. And I'd get a group together, and we'd watch them. And so when they started parroting those, it was kind of exciting to go, oh, I've seen this. Oh, okay, you know, there you go. Um, but I had, yeah, I distinctly remember watching Manos and, uh, and quite enjoying it. So. Uh, Manos, The Hands of Fate is one that I, I think a lot of people, if you were to ask to name one of the better episodes, would pick. I didn't just because it, I'm not a huge fan when the movies are just that painful to, wa- to sure. watch on their own. And I think it kind of works better when there is some underlying redemptive value because otherwise you can get someone who's making fun of a test pattern for an hour and a half and you know which i'm not saying manos is as good as a test pattern but um (laughs) yeah to me the girl in lover's lane when i watched that the good part about it was it, it reminded me of that time a long time ago when i first started watching these joel was there and that crew that's the only crew i've ever seen on this show until yesterday and it was it was decent but when I got to the second one, I laughed so hard. <laughs> I think I missed some of it. <laughs> and, you know, this is the only one I've seen with Mike and his crew, so I don't know if they're better or if it was just a funnier movie or, or what it was. But uh, tell us the second one that you picked for us. So the second movie I chose, or the second episode, was 
Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonders. <laughs> and it stars Merlin the Magician brought to modern times where he is tangentially related to this story about a guy who ends up with an evil book and then tangentially related to another story about a kid who gets an evil toy monkey. And this actually may be making more sense than what actually ended up on the screen. Because if you research the actual history of this movie, it is literally, well, we've got this one movie, let's or this one short, it's like 30 minutes, what can we add to it to pad it out to the 87 minutes we need to be able to release it as a movie? And the, the result is this strange movie that's... It, it opens with this one creepy effect of an old woman at a Ouija board and lightning and crashing, and then you realize that, no, they're just watching television, and it's actually <laughs> Ernest Borgnine with his kid who then proceeds to tell the story of these other stories that don't tie into each other at all, despite Ernest Borgnine's presence and conviction that they somehow relate to each other. And it's just inception how little they make sense in relation to each other. I thought two things when I was watching this uh, over the last couple of days. One, uh, I was thinking there's this must have been in totally in response for The Princess Bride and that, that ability of Grandpa's telling his kid a story, like in the yeah. same way that it's yeah. it's set up for the Princess Bride. Two, that Merlin is essentially the Crypt Keeper telling... But I thought it was going to be a fluffy, family-friendly, kind of cute, magic-is-in-the-air kind of a feel. You know, like it really <laughs> sets it up. Like, Grandpa's going to tell the story that's going to make his kid feel better. This is not the story you tell to children, <laughs> Ernest Borgnine! This is... This is definitely a, a an attempt at a, a kind of like Tales from the Crypt or a Twilight Zone episode. Like this is decidedly disturbing on both. For both stories are are a bit nuts, and Merlin does not help it. Uh-uh. There are three dead pets throughout yeah. the course of this one seventy-minute movie. It is, it, <laughs> and, and again, this is being told to. A child who looks, I don't know, maybe 10? He's not if that. It's not like he's an older kid who's going to be able to handle the tale of mittens getting roasted alive by an evil guy's fire breath. Yeah, dragon <laughs> breath, right? Yes. <laughs> they have chiclets for that. <laughs> <laughs> Believe in magic or I will kill you. <clears throat> yeah, I was definitely taken aback. I don't know what I was expecting. I, def- I laughed at this one a lot more because just the entire premise of the original movie is so bonkers and so out there as opposed to Lover's Lane which is you know I can kind of see this you know I can see how this story is going to evolve and it's definitely a period of its time and it's it's bad because it's it never really is put together but you can see what they were going for and it could have been really good whereas mm-hmm. this is just across the board doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, I don't know how Merlin gets his beard that clean and his hair. <laughs> it's obviously, you know, obviously fake beard, obviously fake wig. Um, yeah. 19, this is, I think that film was made in 1995 too, which is really weird to think of because I don't think of 
this show is being able to dip into more that more recent kind of fare uh, because uh, I just I guess I just hadn't seen an example of it. Sure, but but clearly though one of the constituent movies was from a much earlier era as they keep joking about 70s house and you know the kids playing with an ad at or something uh, yeah yeah it is yeah it was like how do they get away with showing star wars toys and i thought that too and yeah. mentioning they kept on mentioning chewbacca chewbacca martian <laughs> what was the martian song he started singing with rock his... and roll martian <laughs> <laughs> rock and roll martian oh man that kid that kid really had it coming and the thing is, though, that the original short movie, because the, the original short that they kind of pasted the rest of the movie onto was the Evil Toy Monkey movie, which means that at some point, some producer said, yes, I found the basis for my feature-length film, this Evil Toy Monkey. But the original was much darker. Everyone dies. What? This is one where I've actually, you can track down the original ending, but it pretty much opens, it ends with the grandma bringing home the evil toy monkey. The evil toy monkey goes nuts and everyone dies. The end. Oh, <laughs> wow. Wow. That's definitely so, different. Yeah, I mean, the the world of darkness that was what ended up on the screen was actually lighter than their source material as far as evil toy monkey killing families movies go. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, it reminds me of a Stephen King film. I don't... Monkey Shines, right? Like, it's... The monkey uses, Shines, It yeah. uses the same kind of monkey. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it, or maybe I have, but that... I mean, I don't know what mom, A, waits that long to get a present for their child, and B, <laughs> looks at that and goes, yeah. Forget Star Wars, man. This kid's going to love that. I love how everyone in the film has to pretend how uh, interested they are in this really creepy monkey. Uh, actually, what, going back on the thinking about these movies over and over, was that woman the the mom? I, I never got the sense of any kind of relationship between the dad and her. Oh, I guess, I guess she doesn't actually come back. I was thinking stepmother, and she was just trying to find a good gift for the kid. But you're right; she never shows back up in right. the film, does she? It's just that weird '70s porn stash neighbor, <laughs> uh, who just kind of like, yeah, that was a yeah. You're right. I guess we're following her for no apparent reason. I I think the thing that this movie did for me more than any other has made me a keenly acutely aware of when a movie is using a framing device. Because at several times throughout the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version, they remind you that um, that Ernest Borgnine is telling this story to right. the grandchild. So they'll be like, he puttered around the kitchen and got himself a cold drink. <laughs> Those were the best jokes too, all the Borgnine stuff with the fart jokes. And the, the kid says, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Shaft. <laughs> and the, you have a sea turtle under there. The yeah. lights go out. The, Uh-oh, we better eat all the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and all the Merlin stuff, too, when he first appears and all the smoke, and they're like, he uses his trained flatulence to scout out the room. <laughs> and then they say, Jam Productions presents Merlin. <laughs> Coming through the smoke. Oh, I was dying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his, what was Merlin's owl-turned-girlfriend? Zarella? Zarella. Yeah. 
Yeah, and again, they, they make reference to the fact that, uh, I've really got to end things with Zarella. It's not fair to Nimue. Or, yeah, or right, i got to right. end things with Nimue. It's not fair to Zarella. And you just don't get many other shows that are making jokes about Arthurian legend just as a throwaway line, you know? Sure, sure. And yeah, Excalibur's sitting there in the showroom. They don't actually go, go in and talk about it uh, much. But, uh, like, what is Merlin's endgame here? Because... <laughs> He gives away both items uh, and has another one stolen. Plus, you figure Merlin would have better security than that. Uh, and what is he doing carrying around the evil death monkey to begin with? <laughs> also, yeah. who, who, who goes out in the middle of the desert to bury the monkey rather than just, I don't know, smash it with a shovel? <laughs> but, but then you wouldn't get the great scene with the, um, the, the cranky psychic. Oh my god. Oh Listen, David, you have to take care of this situation. <laughs> you can't let him know. There's a whole scenario where you can't let him know that you know where he's trying to casually knock the monkey into a bag. He like oh picks up the monkey. Oh, there you go. Dusts it off. Puts rearranges the bag in the perfect spot and hits the vacuum like four or five times. I mean <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Again, just thinking about this movie, like, they make fun of it in one of the skits, but niche reviewing, is that, was that ever a thing? Is there ever anyone who makes clearly a comfortable middle-class life writing one review a week of a neighborhood store? I mean... <laughs> yeah, that, that guy uh, was definitely full of himself. <laughs> so do you think you'd watch either of these movies without the crew talking over it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, at the very least, watching them again is kind of a way, because often they are trying to serve the joke. And so they will freely talk over bits that actually are explained in the movie or do provide a plot point or the like that obviously knowing why certain things are the way they aren't aren't going to make them good movies. But you can at least understand what they were trying to do. To, to get where they were, it's my love of Mystery Science Theater 3000 is intersected well with Doctor Who in the sense of I tend to be very patient with accepting shows for what they are trying to get across, regardless of what actually ends up on the screen. You know, so if I can make sense of it and the story is fairly decent and the acting, I can at least envision what they were doing, even if the budget wasn't there. I'm on board. I think that's the way you have to do it, uh, unless you're, unless you're actually viewing the especially these old classic Doctor Who episodes at the time they're coming out. You as a as a modern viewer, especially I I know that I have to I have to try to imagine what they were trying to do with the the minuscule budget that they had. And the same can be said a lot for these programs that they're watching. You know, we may see them as hokey special effects, but at the time at the drive-in, they got what they needed to accomplish done. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this up. It, it is such an interesting show. You know, it's so very different from any of the other programs that we have talked about <clears throat> on this podcast. And it's one that you can just watch a single episode. You don't have to worry about watching anything that comes before it. You don't have to worry about any kind of continuity. You know, even the theme song tells you everything you need to know to get you started from the get-go. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. And this is a, sh a program that I hadn't really even considered in... Uh, for many years, and I, I, I definitely want to go back and watch some of the classics, and I think I'd like to give the new 
Netflix show a try. I, I can so, definitely recommend it. Yeah. So, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the program and, and hanging out with us. And, and, and again, thank you for your contributions to Who Against Guns. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. What a wild, wild world. Please stay away from sharp instruments for three weeks after viewing this film and do not operate heavy equipment. Thank you. <laughs>